Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I am Haney. We're Native Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 180, recorded on April the 12th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on nidipentech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. We have a lot of stuff to cover today, both a lot of news and um, an interesting discussion that is not only, well, I'd say it's, it's not a fun discussion. It's an important discussion, but it's not a fun discussion. So let's let's go for the fun stuff for starters. Uh, let, let's start with the, the news part. And it is mid-April, which means that we have a lot of March updates for Power BI and Synapse. Uh, it's, and it's and funny because Config it's Manager. And Config Manager, yeah. yes. So apparently these updates kind of have an issue with calendars, but it is what it is. Having the the Previously, the, the Power BI people essentially take over the Synapse house has meant that we get these uh, monthly updates, uh, update blogs as well, which I love. They're, they're fantastic. And I want to point out a couple of things, four, four things from the Synapse March updates. One is the Python logging. One of the main issues with doing Python stuff in, in Synapse has been that the logging has been... I'll put it very kindly, lacking, as in <laughs> it hasn't really worked at all. So Python logging is a great um, component, but it kind of was useless because you couldn't get anything out of the logging stuff. Now that's been rectified, so you now have very good um, logging through the Python logging component. Another thing that was not possible was to control the Spark session. We have something called the magic command, percent percent something. And this has not been possible to uh, to do through a Synapse pipeline, but now you can through parameters in the Synapse pipeline, which means that you can essentially have a pipeline that's scaling up and scaling down and changing configuration settings on the Spark cluster. That can really open up some interesting uh, solutions. We have an SFTP connector, so that's the secure FTP, uh, secure file transfer protocol for the people that haven't not had the the joy of working with FTP. Um, remember when I started, that was kind of the only thing we had, but I'm not bitter. So the the SFTP is it's extremely common still, and since yes. it's the S one, meaning secure, that it's encrypted, so it's it's reasonably safe to use. Now you have a an SFTP connector for Synapse data flows and Synapse and pipelines, which is good stuff. We essentially have this low-code connector to SFTP stuff, so we don't have to mess around with making our own or, or similar. And finally, this one doesn't sound like much, but it is huge. That's the pipeline script activity. And for starters, they're going with the, the SQL, the, the SQL language, meaning that you can have a, a an activity in, in a Synapse pipeline that you can put your SQL code in. And it would be fantastic if it could just do DML, insert update deletes. But that's not all. It can use DDL as well. So data definition language, create, alter, drop. 
inlining in a Synapse um, pipeline activity step. That is really, really, really nice. Um, there was a quite an interesting blog post the other day by Greg Lockston on the Azure Synapse Analytics blog. And it is titled The Data Lakehouse, The Data Warehouse, and A Modern Data Platform Architecture. And it's an interesting musing on the pros and cons of Data Lakehouse, uh, how Snowflake does things. And essentially, at the end of the day, this is the same thing we've done for all time. And it is more important to focus on what you want to achieve than exactly how you achieve it. So it's an interesting take on the whole fairly polarized discussion about data lake houses, yay or nay, and, and all that stuff. So definitely check it out. I, I found it highly interesting and I, I, I learned a few things as well. And then we have the intelligent cache in Synapse Spark. So Spark has a caching feature, but it is essentially manual. Yes, it's usable for some specific features, but mm, it's rather cumbersome. The intelligent cache, and I have a lot of opinions <laughs> on the name, as always, um, it is capable of figuring out that something changed underneath. So essentially it's gonna take care of the invalidation of the cache or taking care of the staleness automatically. And we are looking at, um, so every first read costs whatever it's gonna cost, right? But the subsequent reads for Parquet, we're looking at a 65% time save. And for CSVs, 50%. And that is enormous. So really interesting feature uh, that builds on Spark and, and improves on, on Spark. We had the March update for Power BI. And it contains a lot of fun stuff, but it contains one thing in particular that I don't think a lot of people realize just how big it is. And that's error bars on, on um, line charts, for instance. The error bar is essentially a statistical way of, well, it's used in statistics to point out that a specific data point may have a, a variance. So you may have a maximum and a minimum value for a specific data point. And we have this tendency to look at, especially um, financial data, for instance, or, or essentially any business data and think that the number we're looking at is exactly what it is. If it says 15, well, it's going to be 15. But we don't have this idea of, well, is it really 15 or is it 14.5? Now we can display the, the confidence interval, essentially showing that, yes, this is a pretty, pretty okay number or no, this number was essentially just pulled out of thin air. And that is in turn going to drive not only a business decision, but also discussion about the quality of your data, I, I should uh, should say. Kind of fun, fun stuff. Are we then moving to the non-fun stuff? Yeah, are we finally moving to the, the, the actual news items? <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> I let's think do that. we are. Yeah. <laughs> and the first thing to talk about is, of course, the door, meaning the new Azure oh, front door. The door. Okay. Yes. The door. Yes. Uh, have you worked with Azure Front Door? I don't know. I don't think either if you have. <laughs> uh, no. And I met a fantastic former MVP from Greece in 
Microsoft Ignite the tour in Milan before the pandemic that were an expert in front door and he had a fantastic session on it so mm. even though I will likely never use it <laughs> myself I'm more than happy to to ask people yep yeah, this could be an option if you have those requirements it, it, yeah. it's, it's it's a very cool feature yes so actually just recently Microsoft launched uh to uh, general availability, a new version of the front door service. There is a standard SKU and a premium SKU that came out. And now the old SKU is actually named Classic in the portal, which is a little like weird to me with having that, you know, cl- Classic Azure Cloud Services connotation with it. I don't think it actually does have that since this was came to be in 2019, but it is a bit of a interesting term to use in that context. And well, Azure Front Door is essentially has been kind of a um, service to have in front of your web application where you could also then link your WAF web application firewall. And then you could have routing in place in, in there and how you want it to happen. And this would work on a global scale. But there has been some restrictions with the first uh, iteration of this service. And for example, in the modern days, there are a lot of uh, single page applications. And if you have routing in place, it has been very difficult to get that to work in the correct way so that all the packages are loaded correctly. And there has been other kind of uh, difficulties in the rule engine and how things work and etc. So I think that is a lot of the reason why this has been brought to be. And also there has been like on the side, there has been the Azure CDN service that has also the Verizon variants and so forth. That has been used a lot if you have, for example, a single page application that you're just hosting from a storage account, you would need a CDN in front of that. But you might end up in a situation where you have a front door and a CDN and you are kind of... Uh, in between two of these services. So what this new layer is achieving is it kind of combines those two features into one. And a lot of, like if anyone has been following the feature requests for Front Door, a lot of them have been commented with these will come out in the standard and premium SKUs. So it has kind of moved that there is not so much new features coming to the old iteration, but they are actually coming to this new service now. Is there a good way to move from the old one to the new? Oh uh, Well, I think most of the things that you have configured in the old one, you can just kind of uh, do the same configuration in front door. And of course, if you're using infrastructure as code, that is pretty simple. <laughs> but if you're not, uh, it might be some poking around. Uh, but most of the capabilities that have been in the old layer uh, in the old tier are available in the new ones. So most likely you won't need to have change the configuration so much. You just need to reconfigure it. I don't think there's a migration uh, option available so much. But there are some interesting things that have come with it. For example, in the premium tier, um, it is available to link this with a service that is behind a private endpoint. Because previously with Front Door, because it is a global service, you needed to have a public endpoint as the back end. So you wouldn't be possible to uh, publish some, something through the Front Door that is in your own virtual network. 
So now with the private endpoints, that has become available and a viable option with a new tier of front door as well. And there are many uh, other cool things in the, at least in the marketing lingo. I haven't had a chance to try it out a lot, but I've actually gone to kind of um, map whether it would better, better uh, fill some requirements that we have in a project. So uh, soon we'll be looking at it practice as well. So really excited about it. And for example, there's, you know, command line tools that you can use with it uh, better than the old version and and things like that. Small things that just make it more flexible. And I would be interested to know what's happening behind the scenes because it seems like there's more more flexibility here than the old, old tiers of front door. Then the other item that I kind of randomly came across uh, with what I was working with is Azure AD B2B Direct Connect. And I'm not actually sure when this has been announced. I wasn't able to find the actual announcement of this. And this is in preview. And what this is, because Alexander looks confused, is that (laughs) (laughs) this allows you to kind of build a trust relationship between two Azure AD tenants, which is like, this is not what you, like, it has been one of the big no-nos in the past. Like, in Azure AD, you cannot, cannot have any trust relationships. That used to be the case. And now we have this B2B Direct Connect that allows you to create both inbound uh, cross-tenant access settings, so how external users from that other tenant can access your resources, whether it's just a specific app or multiple apps, um, or, and then the outbound settings, how your users access that other tenant. But I think one of the kind of in, interesting uh, capabilities here is trust settings, where you can determine whether you trust the MFA from the other organization, for example. So if there are some like big organizations that are actually using multiple Azure AD tenants, it would ease their MFA configuration quite a bit to be able to say, hey, we're going to trust the MFA from our kind of home tenant that we use. Of course, in most cases, Microsoft says, do not use multiple Azure AD tenants, but you might end up in that place if it's a big organization or something, something. So convenient. There's another point to that if you trust the other party's MFA because most of my customers are now completely moving away from phone-based authentication, which is then texts or phone calls. App doesn't count as a phone-based authentication. So I could basically say to a partner I'm collaborating with that I I won't trust your MFA if you don't use the appropriate way of doing MFA. And the reason I guess why this hasn't been re-announced is that it's not done yet. It has one use case today, and that is the shared channels within Teams. Oh so no, can... I'm so bummed. Yeah, but it, it's a start. And I, like, it's it is. a huge change. It and is. And that will most definitely remove some of the real pain points. So it might be that this is actually simpler uh, to use then try to solve this multiple tenant thing in Teams. So they're just trust everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Not that you should. But uh, I'm really keen on seeing how this can work. 
And uh-huh. I think, like, looking at Sweden with our fantastic way of doing municipalities, where you might have a tenant yeah. for school and one tenant for administrative use, this yeah. can now be a way that that actually could work as two tenants again, which would be fantastic. So it's it's a great docs page with so many interesting things. And just by reading it, you then start, okay, how can I apply this? And like you started with as well, you don't have to allow an organization to trust everything. You can say, we only trust you to collaborate with teams. There were a great, uh, however pre-recorded Microsoft event last week. I'm not really certain if I like that. But every every session were pre-recorded where they announced a ton of things in terms of hybrid work. I will mention one thing before we head into these things. Some of you might remember that I was first in line to buy a Surface Pro X when they were released at the last Physical Ignite. Uh, oh, yes. I, yeah, and I one of the main reasons why I wanted it were because they it has a built-in AI ship that were supposed to bring my eyes into eye contact even if I was looking down on my device. So the AI in Teams would fix my eyes, basically. Now... Microsoft announced that they will be bringing that to everybody (laughs) in Oprah style. (laughs) So teams will be able to adopt my eyes so that even if I'm looking down on my computer, (laughs) I will be looking straight (laughs) into the eyes of the person on the other side. And I can't wait to see so many hilarious mistakes with this. (laughs) But I I think it's important. Can I, can I just say one thing? Yeah. Um, and and this this is completely unscripted, and I, I just came across an interesting uh, article on Zoom fatigue the other day, mm-hmm. and it was written by someone who actually knows something, i.e., a scientist. And one of the things they said was that uh, one of the things that make us so tired is the unnatural amount of eye contact. When you're talking to someone or, or in, in a meeting, their eyes are going to be everywhere. I mean, they're, they're going to go down to, to write something. They're going to look up for a bit. They're going to think about it. it it's going to flitter around a lot. When we do things through teams, we tend to stare at the damn camera. And combined with the fact that everything is much larger, I mean, teams, you're, you're pretty big on my screen, much bigger than you'd be if I am in real life. Same room. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and that is, is one, one of the reasons why Zoom fatigue is an issue. So yeah, this is probably a good, great, fantastic thing. I'll turn it off. Thank you very much. I will add that link to the show notes because I need to read that. So moving into the things I have chosen to speak about today. First and foremost, everyone knows that I love Windows updates and that I'm a passionate supporter of this fail fast windows as a service terminology and culture and way of working and as anyone know i was also a huge supporter of the last windows which were supposed to be windows 10 in this event they actually blamed covid for windows 11 
and and we will talk about that will be my rant for the next time they said we had to create a new windows operating system to adopt to the changes that were put on us as part of covid that's the biggest I, I bs can't ever wait for that that episode <laughs> that yeah, is me the neither. biggest bs ever <laughs> but windows auto patch were introduced which is basically allowing an organization to tell Microsoft, hey, we want you to manage our Windows updates. We want everything to be patched by this date. And Microsoft will take care of that patching, creating the pilot rings, distributing the patches, and then allowing you to say, okay, you have now reached 95% success rate. Would you like to continue? And you can then say yes or no. So basically, Windows update as a service for real and it will be included in e3 and above uh, free of charge basically what isn't free of charge are some of the news new items in intune look at microsoft intune and and compare it to where it were 10 years ago it has gone from nothing to a fantastic solution but the price hasn't increased that much really over time even though they have added support for new operating systems and all of that I'm very happy to see that they are now introducing premium add-ons to Intune. So instead of just giving away features, you can now choose if you want to buy additional add-ons. And the first one is Remote Help, which is basically a support tool fully integrated with Microsoft Endpoint Manager that will enable you to assist people remotely. And that will be an additional cost on top of your existing license. Some think this is madness. I'm thinking this is the way to ensure that we actually can keep the cost for Intune at a relatively low price, and then just add on depending on what we want. If I already are using something else, I wouldn't be forced to pay that extra $3 per user per month for something I already have. We also have a bunch of news in Intune. Most importantly, I would say, is that they are remaking and creating new templates and setting structures for security settings within Microsoft Intune, and that we also are getting new capabilities in deploying um, macOS apps so that we now support both DMG and PKG, PKJ files, and also the uninstallation of DMG files. However, there are tons of things that doesn't work and i would encourage you to to uh, read my colleague uh, tobias almian's blog almond's corner on uh, why you might still want to look into other solutions than the integrated ones you also know that i um, love to hate windows 365 i'm not even trying to hide it anymore but they are introducing a ton of new features some of them are real smoke and mirrors as the future capability of caching your windows 365 desktop offline so windows 365 is windows in the cloud you can then run whatever you want there if you have worked with anything that have remote desktop in front of it for the last 30 years you know how it works this new feature promise you to be able to say i now want to work offline and some way you will be able to continue what you're doing in your cloud PC on your local PC. They haven't announced a lot about it, but uh, I'm not convinced. Other things they are that are great 
are the ability to actually have Windows 365 as just a, another desktop, another virtual desktop in Windows. In Windows, So you have your desktop one, desktop two, you can flip between them, and there you can add Windows 365. So it's basically seamless for the user. That is a fantastic feature, which I really look forward to trying out. And they're also introducing things like booting straight to a Windows 365 desktop instead of going through your first Windows operating system. But, and that's another rant for the future. Should you really run Windows on Windows? And if you Google my name or you search on YouTube, you will find a great interview together with Simon Townsend from IGEL that clearly shows what I think. And the last bit is that they are also making a huge security investment. We spoke about some of these things in a previous episode with Pluton and so on, but they are also now introducing an enhanced phishing protection within Windows. So where it will basically tell you that, okay, you just entered your credentials on a site that we have deemed as unsafe. You are now, we will now prompt you to change your password or we will protect you from actually entering your credentials on that malicious site. And that will also lead into this. They, they understood that not everyone will be able to go passwordless today. So they, they then need to still protect passwords when you're forced to enter them. And I think they've done it in a very neat way. Uh, and that should be available in the 22H2 update for both Windows only Windows 11, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And this is only a drop in the ocean. It was actually a fantastic event. Started with a keynote and then you had three different breakouts for security, management and collaboration. So check those recordings out. And it's a bright future for Windows, regardless if you run it in the cloud or on your hardware. So when's Windows 12 coming out? Well, obviously, I shouldn't comment on that. Have I told you that I actually have a customer that have a habit of in meetings when we talk about Windows, actually starting a audio recording of me saying Windows 10 will be the last Windows (laughs) operating system. Oops. That he has cut out from one of my sessions. Yeah, that didn't age well, did it? It did never say not. never. The uh, uh, no, so, but something completely different. Um, I've talked a bit about the SQL, the the old SQL data warehouse, uh, what's now now known as the dedicated SQL pool in Synapse. It is a very specific piece of kit. It is extremely capable if you know how to handle it. It's not unlike a Formula One car. If you have the proper mechanics and a good track, it is going to run in circles around essentially everything else. The issue is most people cannot do anything with their hands in any mechanical sense at all. And most people tend to try to run the damn thing on like a bike lane in a huge city. That also comes with a few consequences. It really doesn't work that well. So uh, another example of the Synapse people talking to Power BI people is that we now have, and this was actually published 
he was published yesterday. It's an Azure Synapse Analyzer report to monitor and improve Synapse dedicated pools performance. And it, it does this through a really, really good Power BI report that brings in some information about your your pools and essentially points out a couple of, of best practices. So it's it's not complete, but it's a heck of a lot better than we've had so far. And yes, it's it's for free. It's it's fantastic. Check it out. I'm going to link it in in the uh, the show notes. I love it. It's it's this great uh, collaboration effect between the Power BI teams and and the Synapse teams. That was the news. And that brings us to the the other segment. And this one is not a lot of fun. It's extremely important, but it's not a lot of fun. And I'm referring to the blog post uh, that Katarina Wilhelmsen uh, penned a couple of weeks back. And that blog post is called Your Event Needs a Code of Conduct. You need a plan and a process for enforcing it. Here's why. And for starters, everyone, either you're going to an event or you're organizing an event, should read it. Period. Full stop. It is chilling. It is scary. It is horrible in every sense of the word, but it is also extremely enlightening. And essentially, she talks about how would you handle a sensitive and difficult situation at an event? And that's where I want to start. Let's say, and I mean, Simon, you've you've uh, done a couple of events. Mm-hmm. Haney, you have not been an organizer yet, yeah. right? So think of how would you handle that someone comes up to you at your event or before your event and says, well, this person is an issue. And let's start with the fact that you don't know either. Just some random person comes up and says this specific person that you have either as an attendee or as a speaker, even worse, this this person is an issue. How would you, how would you handle that? I think this is what I what I really took to heart after reading Katarina's blog post that I hope that I would have the courage and time to actually speak in that case, which which you said now to both parties and see, okay, what is this really? And then make the right decision at that point in time. But after reading the blog post, I'm not certain that I would do that. I can't honestly say that I know how I would handle it. And that scared me quite significantly. But in in an utopia, I would, of course, investigate what's happened first and then take action to ensure that everyone feels safe. Okay, that's an interesting opinion. And I'm going to come <laughs> back to that. I'm curious to hear yep. what Henny would say. Well, yeah, I also read the blog post as well. And it's kind of those situations that whether you are yourself involved in a similar situation like that, like scared um, or anything like that, or you are the one who needs to 
do something about it. It's it's a delicate situation, especially if you don't know the people. But it's it's kind of like it's a weird balance of like somebody comes to you with uh as kind of in trustingly and tells you about the situation. Like there's the other part of like why would they need to explain themselves? You know, why would they have to go through what has been happening etc. But also if you know nothing of it, can you actually do that? And the thing is that like I I wouldn't have <laughs> want to be in a situation to have to handle that kind of situation. And it even got me thinking like should there be professionals on site at events who know how to handle these kinds of situations or people should get trained how do you handle these kinds of situations what is the correct way forward and i can honestly say i don't know i don't know i'm still processing after reading it i think like two weeks ago i'm still processing like what would i do in this situation myself i don't know and and you're you're bringing up the exact point that i was going to make to to simon that you you said a couple of things that sound really really good they come with a few caveats you said yeah. that you would listen to both sides and you would basically weigh their words and then take the correct correct action this means that as Haney said that would mean that you would require the victim essentially to explain to you why they feel that this is an issue and i'm i'm i'm, I'm i know that i am i'm really yeah yeah but but using... that's that's the point yeah, yes. absolutely i fully agree with you what you're about to say and <laughs> and that in turn means that you you're you're forcing them to live through the trauma again mm -hmm. and then we come to the other side what is the right way what is the correct course of action so we don't know why something happened we we don't have the background how would you if, if we say that you're not allowed to ask someone says i've i'm, I'm a victim i've been um, treated very badly by this person I'm not going to go into details how would you go about essentially figuring out who to trust because at the end of the day that's that's what it's going to be about and and i think that that's the that's the point. Like in the perfect world, you would reason and, and everyone would feel comfortable. It would make the right decision. But in the end, someone feels uncomfortable. Someone have experienced something that is scary or another negative feeling and that's strong enough to actually ask someone they don't know for help. And to not trust that, as you say, would mean a huge trauma. Like, I actually had the courage to tell someone that I don't know how I'm feeling now. So I, I think that we need to trust that to happen. And trust if, who? Trust the, the victim in this case. So how can you make sure that the victim is, is actually telling the truth? Mm -hmm. And how can you make sure that someone is not trying to just essentially destroy somebody else because of reasons? And I think that that's the hard thing. And, and in that case, I would 
probably and this and now if if this gets me thrown out of the community that that's absolutely fine but i have a <laughs> bigger trust in someone that says i'm not comfortable with this than that a person actually for malicious reasons would use that as a way of getting someone they dislike for something that can be a completely different reason out from an event. The likelihood of that being the case is much lower than someone actually feeling a negative feeling that someone have made them feel. And if that that's wrong, absolutely. I'm I'm here to be corrected because as Haney said, I start to question if I'm the right person to do this. And I also question how does anyone that manage any kind of event, not just in IT, manage yeah. this? Because I do think it's a global challenge. It is. And that we can blow up into proportions that are huge and society level things. But yeah, then we need to take our own action. I've been just really kind of <laughs> making exaggerated facial expressions here because I'm just like thinking like, how how can you actually like, exactly, these questions are super tough. And mm. I think it's kind of naive to think that almost any of us would be ready to handle a situation like that. Real life. Like, I haven't had to come across that kind of situation so overtly ever. So it's like, I, I need more something, skills, I don't know, something. I'd say that you're farther ahead of the curve than most people because you just thought about it. And in, in many ways, that is one of the, the main uh, points that Katrina is making. You need to have a code of conduct and you need to think about how do you enforce it? And how does this make, how, how can you make this matter and not just a fancy piece of paper? And I've found myself in two situations where these things have been an issue. And I think that the community kind of sits on not the solution, but the community can be leveraged. Because what happened in, in one case, I'm not gonna name any names or any, any events, but um, there was someone at an event, they were chosen as a speaker, and this person has been an issue in the past. This was communicated to the organizers, and the organizers doubled down and said, well, we don't have any proof to which I then explained, don't believe me. Ask people you trust in the community because there are a lot of people that know exactly this situation and know exactly the story that I'm referring to. And again, don't trust me. Ask people you trust. And by having this strong community and having essentially some people you can trust more than, well, me or whomever it may be that comes with some, some information, then it makes it easier, not easy, but easier to figure out, as you said, it, Simon, the right way forward. But this is, I, I, I can't think of a, 
more difficult topic at all. Yeah. No. No, and I think it it and and when we talk about legal things, because in in practice, like in 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 society, this happens every day, and there we have laws, and we have police, and we have everything. But we also have pre like we have had this experience before. Someone else have made a decision for us in a court or something like that. We know what we're expected to do, and someone else then I take the responsibility of solving it. Really? How? Isn't it so? If if I say that someone hurt me... Yes. ...on the streets... Yes. ...someone actually speaks to both parts and decides based on the law that the person committed a crime or not. Well, according to your witness statement, yes. And it's going to be the same thing, their word against yours, essentially. Yeah, but then, then you have the the entire structure around it. I'm stop me if I'm no no going so, out here. So when the decision has been made, the structure yeah. is there. But yeah, yeah. Essentially, there there's nothing there to help you figure out again who is in the right. Um, no. But yes, I I, I see your point. Yeah, so basically we have the code of conduct in society. It's the law. We have someone mm. that upheld that and that we all, to some extent, depending on where you live in the world, trust, which can be the police or other things. Sure. But when you are at a conference, you have a code of conduct that you need to fulfill. You need to reinvent that entire system. And it's not just your conference. It's the entire, in our case, IT community that it affects. And then you can also continue this. How do you ban a person from a conference? And all of those practical things, which then turns into a huge discussion. And I'm so happy you brought that up. Yeah. Because and I'm not the person to answer that. No, I'm, I, I don't want to bring, bring one more thing uh, before we, we look at um, mm -hmm. ending this. Blacklists. Mm -hmm. So let's say that we have a known bad apple. How do we keep this individual from reappearing at a new conference where the organizers don't know, or even worse, don't care? Because he or she may not have done anything mm -hmm. that we know, so this cannot be an issue, which is a pretty surprisingly mm -hmm. common so how, how how would you use and how would you create a blacklist are you even allowed to do that funny you should ask gdpr yes no it's it's a huge <laughs> or many other things yeah. from, from from a legal standpoint it is a complete and utter totally no 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 yeah but aside that how would it be handled i don't have any answers and how are we supposed we to continue graph, this? Graph database of of the event organizers <laughs> that move from one place to another and you know talk to each other. <laughs> I think you you just hit hit the nail on the head. Talk to each other. And as as an organizer, if you have another organizer or well, essentially anyone you trust going, mm, you probably don't want to have this person or due to reasons that I cannot disclose, mm. this person has been an issue. Yeah. 
I think you said it best, Simon. I mean, some people just don't need to be there. No, the, the, exactly. The, the, the consequences of them being there far outweighs the benefits of having them there. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's considered a rock star because everybody needs to be held accountable. Uh, yeah, especially if it is a rock star profile. Yes. They are they they can't behave in a bad way. They are supposed to be role models. That's the responsibility we as public figures, even though we aren't influencers on Instagram with millions of followers, but we are a role model for so many people around in the community. And and we can't accept things like that. And I think we also always are we see the worst possible case. It's not so that if you have a fantastic conference and even if you tell someone that you're not welcome, it won't affect the conference if it's a good conference and you have the trust from the community. And you have 10, 20, two other speakers that will be super interesting regardless. You touched on something that is important. We may not be, as you said, super influencers, but we're part of the community. We all have a voice in the community and we have a responsibility to use that voice to call out whenever we see something that is just not okay. And if you don't call out, then you're you're giving a tacit approval. Yeah. And that is never okay. On May the 20th and, and May, May 21st, we're hosting Data Saturday Stockholm. And I I just talked to um to Daniel today, the organizer, and the 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 dinner is gonna be fantastic. Very Swedish, I'll say that. Um <laughs> Oh that is, that is a good not thing? a good thing. <laughs> he he seems to think that is a very good thing. And and well, yes, now it, it's gonna be fantastic. And Haney, you're gonna do your first pre-con. Yes. How does that feel? It's pretty exciting. I have a lot of ideas. I I could probably do two or more days <laughs> yeah. about the topic. So I'm going to do about uh, Terraform and how to use that for data platform uh, you know, management, creation, etc. And yeah, it's fun because I've kind of done a very, very condensed version of this session in one hour. So now I get to go into all the nice details and stuff, which is really exciting. So, For sure. And I mean, on the, the 20th, the Friday, we managed to snag not only Haney, but also Katrina. So Katrina Wilhelmsen yes. will do an ADF pre-con as well. And you really can't go wrong with either. Then it is the Data Saturday. And I have the immense privilege of doing the, the keynote. And then I will do, be doing one session myself and one 20 minute uh, lightning talk with uh, Linda. And you're going to do one session and one lightning talk, right? Yeah, I think so. I actually have to double check what I'm doing there. <laughs> but yes, two, two sessions. Yeah. Well, in that case, it's been wonderful to have you here. And thank you so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks. And until then, have a good one. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. 
Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Haini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at